First Chapter Friday, Out of My Mind by Sharon M. Draper. Words. I'm surrounded by thousands of words, maybe millions. Cathedral, mayonnaise, pomegranate, Mississippi, Neapolitan, hippopotamus, silky, terrifying, iterescent, tickle, sneeze, wish, worry. Words have always swirled around me like snowflakes, each one delicate and different, each one melting untouched in my hands. Deep within me, words pile up in huge drifts, mountains of phrases and sentences and connected ideas, clever expressions, jokes, love songs. From the time I was really little, maybe just a few months old, words were like sweet liquid gifts, and I drank them like lemonade. I could almost taste them. They made my jumbled thoughts and feelings have substance. My parents have always blanketed me with conversations. They chattered and blabbled. They verbalized and vocalized. My father sang to me. My mother whispered her strength into my ear. Every word my parents spoke to me or about me, I absorbed and I kept and remembered all of them. I have no idea how I untangled the complicated process of words and thought, but it all happened quickly and naturally. By the time I was two, all my memories had words, and all my words had meaning, but only in my head. I have never spoken a s one single word. I am almost 11 years old. Chapter Friday by Jerry Spinelli. My name is John, John Corgan, but everyone calls me Crash, even my parents. It started way back when I got my first football helmet for Christmas. I didn't really remember this happening, but they say that when my Uncle Herm's family came over to see our presents, as they were coming through the front door, I got down into my four point stance growled hut 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 and ch charged ahead with my brand new helmet seems i knocked down my cousin bridget cl clear back over the doorway and onto her butt into the foot of snow they said she brawled bloody murder and refused to come into the house so uncle herm finally had to drag his whole family away before they even had a chance to take their coats off like I said, personally, I don't remember the whole thing. But looking back at what I do remember about myself, I'd had to say the story was, is possibly true. As far as I can tell, I've always been crashing into people, into things, you name it, with or without a helmet. Actually, I lied a minute ago. Not everyone calls me crash. There's one person who doesn't. It's just one of a million things that have been bugged me for years about this kid. I can remember the first time I saw him, the summer before first grade, seven years ago. Then, it was a sunny, sunny summer day. I was in the front yard digging a hole with my little red shovel. I heard something that whistled. I looked up, it was whistling. It was coming from a funny looking dorky little runt walking up the sidewalk. Only he wasn't just walking regularly. He was walking like he owned the place, both hands in his pocket, sort of swing, la di la di with each step, strolling, strolling and gawking at the houses and, whisp and whistling a happy little dork tune 
like some sneezy or snoozy or something their names are. And he wore a button, a big one. It covered about half his chest, which wasn't that hard since the chest was so scrawny. So here the he strolls, strolling and whistling, gawking, buttoning, dorking up the sidewalk, onto my sidewalk, my property. All of a sudden I knew what I had to do. Like there was a big announcement coming down from the sky. Don't let him pass. So I jumped up from my hole and plant myself right in front of the kid. And what's he do? He gives me his, this big grin and says, good morning, I'm your new neighbor. My name is Penn Webb, what's yours? And he sticks his hand out to shake. I noted his question and, I, and he said, Penn, what kind of name is that? I was named after Penn Relays, he said, huh? I said, it's a famous track meet when I was born. My parents let my grandfather name me, and there's, and that's his name he picked me. He wore a race at the Penn Relays in the, in the year 1919. 3,000 people cheered him on. He lives in North Dakota. I lived in North Dakota too until yesterday. Then I moved here to Pennsylvania with my mother and father. My mother had me when, I, when she was 40 years old. I was a late baby. They're gonna be flat snout nose baby if you don't shut up on thinking. What does your button say? I asked him. He stuck out his scrawny chest. It says, hi, my name is Flinkered Chill. What's a flinker tail? A flinker tail is a, is a squirrel that's, there are all of them in the North Dakota. That's why it's called the flinker, flinker tail state. What is Pennsylvania called? The poop state. He didn't crack a smile, but didn't even know it was a joke. He got off Ronnie and thought, and thought about it and nodded and said, oh, then his motor mouth took off again. North Dakota was real flat. There we lived again. And there's prairies. My father said when the wind blows over the prairies, it looks wavy like the ocean. I never saw a real ocean yet, but my father says we're going to see the Atlantic Ocean soon. My dad's an artist. He made birds out of glass and and pediments and wooden metal. He can say any kind of bird you you can name, but he's best in the world and at prairie chickens. I cut him off. My father is starting a new business. He works 70 hours a week, sometimes more. My mother works at home like my father. She makes greeting cards and buttons like this. My mother works and goes to school, both. I like dogs, but I like turtles. Would you like to see my turtle? No. I have a grandfather named Scooter. He is a cook in the US Navy. I'm an only child. I'm starting first grade this year. Me too, he said. And for a second time, he asked me my name. Metatroid, I said. He didn't bl- even blink. He just stuck out his hand and, and said, nice to meet you, Metatroid. Instead of my hand, I stuck out my shovel. He shook it. He laughed. He thought it was the funniest thing, Bugs Bunny. Since Bugs Bunny. For some reason, that laughing was the first straw, was the last straw. I plucked this s- silly button off of his shirt, dumped it in the hole, and I was digging and covered it over with dirt. I stomped and flattened the dirt with my foot. The kid froze in mid-laugh. The eyes took up his whole face. Then he turned and walked down the block. He wasn't whistling now. I figured that was the last time I'd ever see him, that ham bone. First Chapter Friday, Booked by Quaim Alexander. Gameplay, on pitch, Lightning fast, dribbling, fake, 
and then make a dash. Player tries to steal the ball, lift and step and make him fall. Zip and zoom to find the spot. Defense readies for the shot. Chip, then kick it in the air. Take off like a Belgian hare. Shoot it left, then watch it curve. All he can do is observe. Watch the ball bend in mid-flight. Play this game for in tonight. Wake up call. After playing FIFA online with Kobe till 1.30 a.m. Last night you wake this morning to the sound of mom arguing on the phone with your dad. Questions. Did you make up your bed? Yeah. Can you put bananas in my pancakes, please? Did you finish your homework? Yeah. Can we play a quick game of ping pong, mom? And what about the reading? Did you see? I didn't see you do that yesterday. Mom, dad's not even here. Just because your father's away doesn't mean you can't avoid your chores. I barely have time for my real chores. Perhaps you should go spend less time playing Xbox at all hours of the day. Or Xbox at all hours of the night. Huh? Oh, you think I didn't know? I'm sick of reading stupid words, Mom. I'm going to high school next year, and I shouldn't have to keep doing this. Why couldn't your dad? Be a musician, like Jimmy Leon's dad, or own an oil company, like Kobe's. Better yet, why couldn't he be a cool detective, driving a sleek silver convertible sports car, like Will Smith in Bad Boys? Instead, your dad's a linguistic professor, with chrome verbonia as evidenced by the fact that he actually wore a dictionary or wrote a dictionary called weird and wonderful words with got this footnotes in elementary school spelling bee when he intentionally misspelled heifer he almost had a cow you're the only kid on your block at school in the entire freaking world, who lives in a prison of words. He calls in the pursuit of excellence, you call it Shawshank. And even though your mother forbids you to say it, the truth is, you hate words. Giddy up. She hollers, smashing the ball to the edge of the right corner of the table, with so much force it sends you driving into the laundry stack trying and falling to lob it back. Loser does the dishes tonight. You can't say that now, Mom. It's game point. She dropped the shot right over the net that you can't get to. You're a one-trick pony, young boy. Stick to soccer, she jokes, then headlocks you. Hits you on the backside with her paddle and soaks your forehead. And kisses after beating you for the fourth game in a row. Mom. Used to race horses, but now she only trains them. Correction, she used to train them. Which was pretty awesome, especially when you get got to cowboy around the neighborhood or watch the preakness from luxury box seats with unlimited coke and shrimp. But she doesn't do it anymore. Since there are no horses in the city, last year she did get asked to train a horse named Bite My Dust. When she was revealed, but when she revealed that we'd have to move to small town with no university or travel soccer team, Dad said no with a capital N.
Blackjack on the way to school. With two sevens showing you, say, hit me, Kobe curses, when you get a third blackjack. Mrs. Hardwick's honors English class. Is one boring required read after another? So you've become a pro at daydreaming while pretend listening. The beautiful game. You're pumped to the match is tied at the end of extra time. Players gather at center circle. For the coin toss, you call trails and win. Red Madrid scores the first goal. Ours bounce off the left post. They make the next two. In a row, we make three. They miss. The final two. It's 3v3. Your turn. To rev the engine, turn on the jets, score, and you win. Teammates lock arms for the final kick. The crowd roars, screams your name. Nick Hall, Nick Hall, Nick Hall. Like a greyhound coursing game, you take off. From 12 yards out, winding for the kill. But right before the winning kick of your Barcelona debut, Mr. Hardwick strikes streaks across the field in her heels and purple polyester dress yelling nicholas hall pay attention the thing about daydreaming in class is you forgot what was happening just before ninety thousand fans started cheering you to victory so everything blurs when your best friend whispers from behind you she's talking to you bro and your teacher slams you with a question that makes no sense the expression, to nip something in the bed, is an example of what, Nicholas? Uh, to nip in the butt is an example of how to get slapped by a girl, you reply, as confused as a chameleon in a bag of gummy worms. Which ends almost everyone in class into fits of contagious snickering. Everyone except Mrs. Hadwick. Hardwick. First Chapter Friday, Becoming Muhammad Ali, by James Patterson and Kwame Alexander. Round one, I remember everything. You probably would have too. That night was a piece of American history. The Clay family phone was dusky black with the rotary dial, and it sat on a wooden table in the neat as a pen living room of the little house on Grand Avenue in Louisville, Kentucky. Some 20 of us were crammed like sardines into the room, waiting for that phone to ring, waiting, waiting, waiting for Cassius to call home. It was a February night in 1958, and I remembered it like it was yesterday. My best friend, Cassius, was 300 miles north in Chicago, and that night he was fighting for a championship in the Golden Gloves boxing tournament. Cassius wasn't a professional yet, just an amateur tall. Tall, but skinny. But a little skinny and a lot raw. Only 16 years old, like me. I'm Lucius, by the way. Nice to meet you. You could call me Lucky. All my friends do. Cassius has already won plenty of bouts over, all over Kentucky. But the Chicago Golden Gloves was the big time. When he won there, and we all knew he would, it would be lights out. From now on, people everywhere would know the name Cassius Clay, 
and so we waited for the phone to ring. I remember that living room was so packed with family and friends and neighbors that we could hardly move. The smell of roast chicken and sweet potato pie and cheese grits mixed with the smell of paint and turpentine. Mr. Clay, Mr. Clay, Cassius's dad, who everybody called Cash, um, was a sign and billboard painter, and he kept his work supplies right there in the house. Mrs. Clay, somebody called out, when that boy of yours gets famous, he ought to buy you a bigger house. Oh, you know he will. She answered. Then she looked right at me. Isn't that right, Lucius? Yes, ma'am, you know it is. Cassius promised you a big house. I remember that Miss Clay was too nervous to eat, but she wasn't too nervous to talk about proud she was, how proud she was. My Cassius did everything early. She was saying to a group of ladies, he crawled early, talked early, walked early, walked on his toes like a dancer. The ladies all laughed, as if they hadn't heard that story a hundred times before. But Mrs. Clay just couldn't help it. Cassius always told her he was bound to be the greatest with a capital G, and she believed it with all her heart. So did I. So did everybody in Louisville's West End. Come on, phone ring, phone ring a ding ding. The men and boys around the room, including Cassius's little brother, Rudy, looked at one another with big grins and made punching motions with their fists. The big fight should be over by now. Under those bright lights in the middle of that huge Chicago stadium, Cassius would be standing tall in the rain with one hand over his head, like always. His opponent next to him with head bowed down in defeat. Then the phone rang. It was Cassius with news about the fight, and then he told it like only Cassius could tell a story. Before the fight, a reporter asked me if I thought I was as good as Joey Lewis or Sugar Ray at, was at my age, and I told him, I don't think I'm as good. I'm better. Got more flow than Joe, more slay than Ray. I'm sweeter, stronger, and faster. As a matter of fact... I'm so fast, I can't even catch myself. Cassius Clay versus Alex Watt, February 24th, 1958. Here's all it went down. Here's how it all went down. The bell rang in Chicago Stadium, and I could barely see the lightweight rush me through the rank cigar smoke that filled the arena. In the first round, he threw punches like pitches, fast and straight, striking air and striking out. So I played peekaboo in a second, sending quick jabs to his head. You ain't ready for Cassius, I whispered. Then I shook him up with the left and took him down hard in the third. He sure wasn't ready. He sure wasn't ready, but neither was I when I found out who I was fighting with next. Cassius Clay versus Frank Francis Turley, February 25, 1958. Frank Turley was a cowboy from Montana, meaner looking than an angry ox with fists, even meaner. They said he broke a guy's nose with a left jab, then smiled when the Joker went tumbling out of the ring, blood sprouting every which way. I'm gonna lick you good, boss, he said, winking at me, before the bell rang, and I believed that he believed he would.
knockout. We traded punches like baseball cards. Him, a wild Mustang. Me, a Louisville Slugger. Back and forth, left and right, rough and rugged, till he concerned me with two lucky shots to the jaw that felt like kicks from a mule and sent me tumbling to the mad wondering if I should just stay there. Long count. One, while I lay there, the referee standing over me, counting to ten to see if I could get up. I wish my father was sitting right, right inside about my name. Two, I thought about home, about 3302 Grand, 3302 Grand Avenue, and playing football in the backyard with Rudy. And three, the Montgomery kids next door who was gonna, and who was gonna play baby, and who was gonna babysit them. Now, then I was a boxer. Four, and whether Lucky bought the new Superman like he promised. Five, I thought about my granddaddy, Herman's story about Tom the Slave. Six, I thought about how boxing was gonna set me free, set us all free, and seven, but I asked Mama Bird to cook for my celebration dinner. Dinner after I got up and ate. Whooped the cowboy from Montana and advanced to the semifinals of the 1958 Golden Gloves Championship celebration dinner menu. Two orders of veal, three slices of white bread, a bowl of cornbread dressing, one large green salad, a bowl of chili. Scrambled eggs, cheese grits, baked chicken with baked potato, two pieces of pecan pie, five scoops of cranberry or five scoops of strawberry ice cream, and a great big old glass of OJ. That was Becoming Muhammad Ali, a novel by James Patterson and Quaim Alexander, the first chapter writer. First Chapter Friday Scat by Carl Hyacin Chapter 1 One day, before Miss, Mrs. Starch had vanished, her third-period biology students trotted silently, as always, into the classroom. Their expressions reflected the usual mix of dread and melancholy for Mrs. Starch, was the most feared teacher at the Truman School. When the bell rang, she unfolded stiffly like a crane and rose to her full height of nearly six feet. In one hand, she twirled a sharpened Ticonderoga number two pen, pencil, a sure, a sure sign of trouble to come. Nick glanced across the aisle at Marta Gonzalez. Her brown eyes were locked on Mrs. Starch, and her thin elbows were planted like fence posts, pinning her biology book open to chapter eight. Nick had left his own textbook in his locker, and his palms were sweating. "'Good morning, people,' said Mrs. Starch, in a tone so mild that it was chilling. "'Who's prepared to tell me about the Calvin cycle?' Only one hand had rose. It belonged to Graham, who always claimed to know the answers, but never did. Mrs. Starch hadn't, hadn't called on him since the first week of class. The Calvin cycle, she repeated. "'Anybody?' Marta looked as if she might throw up again. The last time that happened, Mrs. Starch had barely waited until the floor was mopped before instructing Marta to write a paper listing five major muscles used in the act of regurgitation. Reg, regurgitation, I don't know how to say that. Nick and the other students had been blown away. 
What kind of teacher would punish a kid for puking? By now, Mrs. Starch was saying, the photosynthetic process should be familiar to all of you. Marta gulped hard twice. She'd been having nightmares about Mrs. Starch, who wore her dyed blonde hair piled to one side of her head, like a beach dune. Mrs. Starch's school wardrobe never varied. A polyester pantsuit in one of four faded pastel colors and drab brown flats. She painted heavy violet makeup on her eyelids, yet she made no effort to conceal an odd crimson mark on her chin. The mark was the shape of an anvil and the subject of Wilde's best solution, but nobody had gotten up the nerve to ask Miss Starch about it. Marta's eyes flicked miserably toward Nick, then back to the teacher. Nick was fond of Mar- Marta, although he wasn't sure if he liked her enough to sacrifice himself to Mrs. Starch, who had begun to pace. She was scanning the class, selecting a victim. A droplet of pers- perspiration glided like a spider down Nick's neck. If he worked up the courage to raise his hand, Mrs. Starch would pounce swiftly. Right away, she'd see that he'd forgotten his biology book, a crime that would be forgiven only if Nick was able to explain and then diagram the Calvin cycle, which was unlikely. Nick was still struggling to figure out the Krebs cycle from Chapter 7. Plants, as we all know, the vital to human existence, said Mrs. Starch on patrol. And without the Calvin cycle, plants could not exist. Could not exist. Graham was waving his arm and squirming like a puppy. The rest of the class prayed that Mrs. Starch would call on him, but she acted as if he were invisible. Abruptly, she spun to a hat to a halt at the front of Marta's row. Marta sat rigidly in the second desk behind a brainy girl named Libby, who knew all about the Calvin cycle, all about everything, but seldom made a peep. The chart on page 169, Mrs. Starch went on, makes it all plain as day. It's an excellent illustration, and one that you are likely to encounter on a test. Quite likely. Marta lowered her hand, lowered her head. A tactical mistake. The movement, slight as it was, caught Mrs. Starch's attention. Nick sucked in a breath, his heart raced, and his head buzzed, because he knew that if it was now or never. Marta seemed to shrink under Mrs. Starch's icy gaze. Nick could see tears forming at the corners of Marta's, Marta's eyes, and he hated himself for hesitating. Come on, people, snap out of your coma, Mrs. Starch chided, tapping her pencil on Libby's desk. The Calvin cycle! The only reply was a ripping noise, Marta's trembling elbows, tearing holes in the pages of her book. Mrs. Starch frowned. I was hoping for a sea of hands, she said with a disappointed sigh. But once again, it seems I'll have to pick a volunteer, an unwilling volunteer. As the teacher pointed her pencil at the top of Marta's head, Nick raised his hand. I'm toast, he thought. She's going to crush me like a bug. Lowering his eyes, he braced to hear Mrs. Starch call his name. Oh, Duane, she sang out. Great, Nick thought. She forgot who I am. But when he looked up, he saw the teacher aiming her pencil at another kid on the other side of the classroom. The mean old bird had totally faked him out. And Marta, too. The other kid's name was really Duane, and Nick had known him since elementary school. When he was two years ahead of Nick and known as Dane the Dweeb, one summer Duane the Dweeb grew five inches and gained 31 pounds. And from then on, everyone called him Smoke, because that's what he wanted to be called. Some kids said it was because he was a pariah. So Dane, 
Mrs. Starch had said sweet, sweetly. Have you finished chapter eight? Rumpled and sleepy looking, Smoke grunted and raised his eyes toward the teacher. Nick couldn't see his expression, but the slump of his shoulders suggested a profound lack of interest. Dwayne! I guess I read it, yeah. You guess, using a thumb and two fingers, Mrs. Starch spun the yellow pencil into a blur, like a miniature airplane propeller. Under less stressful circumstances, it would have been entertaining. I read so much, Smoke said. I forgot which is which. Several students struggled to smother giggles. Marta reached across the aisle, nudged Nick, and mouthed the words, Thank you. Nick felt his face redden. For raising your hand, Marta whispered. Nick shrugged. No big deal, he whispered back. Mrs. Starch moved across the classroom and positioned herself behind Smoke's desk. I see you brought your biology book today, she said. That's progress, Dane. I guess. But you'll find that it's much easier to read when it's not upside down, Mrs. Starch rotated the textbook using the eraser end of her number two pencil. Smoke nodded. Yeah, that's better. He tried to flip open the book, but Mrs. Starch pressed down firmly with the pencil, holding the cover closed. No peeking, she said. Tell me how the Cliven cycle produces sugar from carbon dioxide, and why that's so important to photosynthesis. Give me a minute, Smoke casually began to pick at a nasty-looking zit on his meaty, fuzz-covered neck. Mrs. Starch said, we are all waiting, which was true. The other students, including Nick and Maria, were on the edge of their seats. They were aware that something major and possibly legendary was about to occur. Though they had no clue that within 48 hours, they would each be questioned by sheriff's deputies and asked to tell what they'd seen and heard. Smoke wasn't as tall as Mr. Starch, but he was built like a bull. His size and attitude intimidated all of his classmates and most of the teachers, though not Mrs. Starch. When Smoke tried to flick her pencil off his book, it didn't budge. He leaned back, cracked his knuckles, and said, What's the question again? Marta groaned under her breath. Nick yawned his upper lip. The longer Smoke stalled, the worse it was going to be when Mrs. Starch lowered the boom. For the last time, she said coldly, tell us about the Calvin cycle. Is that like a Harley? Smoke asked, and the students are erupted in laughter. They grew quiet just as quickly because Miss Starch was smiling, and Miss Starch never smiled. Marta covered her face. Has he got a death wish or what? She said to Nick, who had a bad feeling about the whole scene. So, Dane, it turns out you're a comedian. Mrs. Starch said, and all this time, we thought you were just another dole lump with no talent and no future. I guess, said Smoke, who had resumed probing his inflamed blemish. You do a lot of guessing, don't you? So what? Well, I'm guessing that you haven't even glanced at Chapter 8, said Mrs. Starch. Am I right? Yes. And I'm also guessing that you're more interested in playing with your acne than you are in learning the photosynthesis process. Smoke's hand came off his neck and dropped to his side. Looming over him, Mrs. Starts said, A teacher's job is to identify and cultivate each student's strengths and then encourage him or her to utilize those strengths in the pursuit of knowledge. 
There wasn't a trace of anger in his voice, which Nyx found creepy. So, Dane, she continued, what I'd like you to do, since you're obviously fascinated by the subject, is to write a 500-word essay about pimples. The class cracked up again, Nick and Marta too, in spite of themselves. This time, the kids couldn't stop laughing. Miss Starch waited before continuing. You should start with some basic human biology. What causes glandular, glandular skin eruptions in adolescents? There's plenty of information on the internet, Dwayne. As all expect, at least three source citations. The second part of the paper should summarize the history of acne, both medically and in popular culture. And then the last section could deal with your personal pimple. The one which you seemed so enchanted. Smoke stared darkly at Mrs. Starch. Here's the best part, Dane, she said. I want the essay to be funny because you're a funny fellow. An extremely funny fellow. Not me. Oh, don't be modest. You had everybody in stitches just a minute ago. Mrs. Starch turned her back on Smoke and bobbed the pencil gaily in the air. Come on, people, what do you say? Wouldn't it be assuming amusing for Dane to write a humorous essay on pimples and then read it out loud to the whole class? Nobody was giggling anymore, and even Graham had yawned, had yanked down his hand. Smoke wasn't a popular kid, but it was impossible to not feel sorry for him. Miss, Mrs. Starch was being ex- exceptionally brutal, even for Mrs. Starch. Marta looked queasy again, and Nick was starting to feel the same way. Smoke's a longer and definitely freaky, but he has never hassled anybody as long as he was given plenty of space. Nick, Mrs. Starch said. Nick sagged at his desk and thought, I cannot believe this. Mr. Waters, are you with us today? Yes, Mrs. Starch. Be honest, wouldn't you and your classmate enjoy hearing Dane read his pimple paper? Nick's chin dropped to his chest. If he answered yes, he'd risk making a mortal enemy of Smoke. If he answered no, Mrs. Starch would pick on him miraculously, mer- mercilessly, for the rest of the school year. He wished that he could make himself faint, or maybe swallow his own tongue. An ambulance ride would be better than, than this. Well, Mrs. Starch prodded. Nick tried to think of something to say that would free Smoke from doing that essay, and at the same time not anger Miss Starch. Honestly, I'd rather learn about the Calvin cycle, he said. Then Dwayne zits. A few students snickered nervously. No offense, Nick added, with a lame nod to Smoke, who sat expressionless. Mrs. Starch showed no mercy. She spun around and tapped Smoke on the crown of the head. Five hundred words, she said, by the end of the week. Smoke scowled. I don't think so. Excuse me? It isn't fair. Really? Is it fair for you to come up to my class so unprepared and hopelessly unfamiliar with the with this study material to waste my time and that of in that of your fellow students you think that's fair dane smoke brushes shock of jet black hair out of his eyes i apologize okay now let's just go mrs starch bent down slowly peering like a horn heron about to spear a minnow well what happened to our class comedian she asked are you all out of jokes i guess that's too bad, because I accept, expect 500 hilarious words, double-spaced, no way, Smoke said. Mrs. Starch positioned the tip of her pencil, so that it was even with the tip of his nose. Way, 
she said. Nick looked anxiously at Marta, who had closed her biology book and laid her head upon the desk. Smoke took a swat at the pencil, but Mrs. Starch jerked it away. Get out of my face, he said, or else you'll be sorry. Is that a threat, Dwayne? Mrs. Starch didn't sound too worried. Smoke said, it ain't a threat, it's a fact. No, here's a fact. Once more, she leveled her pencil at his nose. You will write a 500-word essay about pimples, and you will read it out loud to all of us, or you will fail this class and have to take it again next year. Do you understand? Smoke crossed his eyes as he stared down the yellow shaft of Mrs. Shaft of Mrs. Starch's number two, Ticonderoga. I guess, he said. Then he calmly chomped the pencil in half, chewed up the graphic graphite along with the splinters and swallowed the whole mouthful with a husky gulp. Mrs. Starch backed away, eyeing with alarm the moist stump of wood that remained in his fingers, in her fingers. Nobody else in the room moved a muscle except for Smoke, who dropped his biology book into a camel pattern backpack, stood up and ambled out the door. Chapter Friday, Save Me a Seat, by Sarah Weeks. Chapter 1, Ravi. Most people in America cannot pronounce my name. On the first day at my new school, my teacher, Miss Beam, is brave enough to try. Sir Yan Yay Na, she says, her eyebrows switching as she attempts to sound it out. Sir Anna Yan, I say slowly. She tries again, but it's no better. I'm going to have to work on that, she says with a laugh. I laugh too. Shariana is my surname. My first name is Ravi. It's pronounced Ravi with a soft ra and a strong V. In Sanskrit, it means the sun. In America, people call me Ravi with the stress on the first syllable. That doesn't mean anything. Patience is a virtue, Emma reminds me often. She believes that with time, people will learn how to say our names correctly. My grandmother tells her not to hold her breath. We moved to Hamilton, New Jersey a few months ago. May 13th, to be exact. I am fresh off the boat, as I say. My father got a promotion at his IT company in Bangalore, so they transferred him to America. In India, Emma, Appa, and I had our own house with a cook and a big garden. We even had a driver to take us wherever we wanted to go. My grandparents lived in their own flat nearby. Now we all live together in a townhouse. In a place called Hamilton News, things are very different here in America. Appa has to take a train to work. We don't have a cook anymore, so Emma has to prepare all the meals herself. Our new house is much smaller than the old one. There's only one bathroom upstairs, which I have to share with my grandparents. I wouldn't mind so much except that Peppera likes to take long showers and Perma leaves her teeth in a glass by the sink at night. I learned to speak English when I was very young. We speak mostly English at home and I went to an English medium school. But for some reason, people here in New Jersey have trouble understanding me when I speak. I am trying to learn how to swirl my tongue so I sound more American. My grandma doesn't like it. Be proud of who you are and remember where you come from, she tells me. If you're not careful, you'll turn into one of them. 
Your grandfather didn't slave in the tea plantation so that his only grandson would become some rude, overweight, beef-eating cow boy. I don't think Prima likes America. My school in India was called Vidya Mandir, which means Temple of Knowledge. My new school is called Albert Einstein Elementary. Prima could hardly wait to show it off to all her friends at home that her grandson had been accepted to a school named after a scientific genius. I'm not a scientific genius, but I am a very good student. My favorite subjects are math, English, and and sports, especially cricket. Boys and girls, please welcome our new students, Ravi, Miss Beam says after she has taken the roll call. He's come to all the way from India. Isn't that exciting? Mrs. Beam is short and round. When she smiles, her eyebrows touch each other. As I look around the room, I see most of Whitely Faces stares back at me. I feel a little nervous. It is my first day of fifth grade in room 506, and I am the only Indian kid in my class. There is one other, a boy named Dylan Summerine, but he doesn't count. He is a ABCD, American-born confused Desi. Desi is the Hindu, Hindi word for Indian. I can tell Dylan is an ABCD because he speaks and dresses more like American than tell us Indian. Tell us something about yourself, Ravi. Miss Beam says, smiling at me. Yes, ma'am, I say, standing at attention. Everyone laughs. Miss Beam claps her hand. Boys and girls, where are your manners? She asks. Go on, Ravi, we're listening. I push up my glasses and continue. My name is Ravi Saranyanran, and I just shifted from Bangalore. Everyone laughs again. What's so funny, I wonder? Miss Beam claps her hands, and her eyebrows are twitching like mad. Boys and girls, is this how we welcome a new student to Elbert Einstein? The room gets quiet. The spotlight is on me. I can feel the whole class staring. This is my first day of school in America, and things are not going well. Mrs. Beam turns to me. You can call me Miss Beam, she says softly. And Ravi is here in America. Students don't need to stand up when the teacher calls on them. Do you understand? Of course I do. I push up my glasses and rub my nose. It's something I do when I'm nervous. Miss Beam comes over to my desk. She has a look of my pity face on her face. Don't worry, Ravi, she says, patting me on the shoulder. You can introduce yourself to the class later. After you've had a little time to work on your English, we have a very nice teacher named Miss Frost in the resource room. I'm sure she can help you. I want to say, first, my English is fine. Second, I don't need Miss Frost. Third, I was top of my class at Vidya Mandor. But here is what I do instead. One, push up my glasses. Two, rub my nose. Three, sit and fold my hands. My friends and teachers at Vidya Mandor will have a good laugh if they could see me now. They're a star student taken for an idiot. What a joke! Miss Beam is writing out her our homework on the board. I open my notebook and carefully copy down the assignment. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Dylan's man staring at me. 
He looks like a movie star staring out of Bollywood. His long, shiny black hair falls over one eye. With a quick jerk of his head, he shakes it away. Then he smiles and winks at me. I smile back. Dylan Saman may be an ABCD kid, but I want—I think he wants to be my friend.